Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 46. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how'd they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? This episode, I sit down with Brittany Franskoviak. Brittany is a biology teacher at Wild Lake High School in Columbia, Maryland. Brittany teaches multiple levels of biology, including AP Biology. Brittany is involved with several high-quality professional development communities, including as a member of the BSCS AP Biology Leadership. Academy and as a senior fellow and Kaleidoscope associate editor for the Knowles Teacher Initiative. Brittany recently partnered with Megan Fretz to create audio recaps of the 2018 March Mammal Madness. You can read Brittany's thoughts about teaching through her writings on Medium, as well as following her on Twitter at F-R-A-N-C-K-O-W-L-H-S. Franco Franco, I don't know how I'd pronounce that now. <laughs> Franco WLHS. Uh, welcome, Brittany. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me on, Aaron. I'm, I'm really flattered to be here. Oh, it's um, great to have you. And uh, we, this has been a long time coming. We've been going back and forth a little bit over the last month uh, between uh, your breaks and my breaks to make sure that we get this happening. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. So yeah, we, uh, you, we've both been traveling in the last month. So <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we'll get to your travels, your exciting travels, and hopefully in a few minutes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is uh, we're getting ready. We're in prime time. This is going to come out beginning of May, so we're in prime time AP land, and uh, we'll also hopefully get a little bit of conversations about sort of what the state of your AP life, and also maybe a little bit on mine at this point uh, as we printing. I don't know about you. But... Yeah, barreling into it. Um, I, I'm going to have a little like shaking kids out of a coma because we're coming out of our April break, uh, and they're like going to be like, wait a minute, we have to take a test. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're they don't they don't seem to it doesn't have the burning fire in them yes yeah, yeah. burning fire hasn't come about yet but uh by the time this episode comes out they'll be taking their other ap's and i think uh it'll be very real feeling to them at that point let's hope yeah mine are mine have been falling apart a little bit recently so we need to pull ourselves back together this week and, and try to get them you know, to sprint with me to the end here. Yeah, I I, I very much feel that sentiment. Right before our uh, our April break, I gave a I gave a test, and it was, it was definitely one of those, uh, you know, going right into the break. And I've got a large number of mixture of junior and seniors, and some of those kids, they uh they they definitely stumbled into the break. Uh, <laughs> yes, our recent FRQ is a uh, is not great. So we're gonna spend this week and you know next couple of weeks trying to practice, practice, practice some more, and uh give them lots of time hopefully to play with the mistakes that they've been making and um you know help them not make it more complicated than it needs to be which so often seems to be the problem with their free response writing yeah yeah i had uh, i had a um disturbing number of students who uh confused independent independent variables yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> which these kids know better and so it just it was like okay sure. we we, yeah. we need a vacation we just need, <laughs> we, need we need to go away so uh yeah it was uh Depressing is one of the words that comes to mind when yeah. you've had students for two years who you know they know the difference and they just right they just you know they freeze up and one of the things that I'm trying to pay more attention to this year is just to help them a little bit with test anxiety. Um, you know, I was grading their their most recent test and they've been rock stars. This group all year have just been it's been a magical AP year for me and uh, I was really surprised by them stumbling as much as they did on the recent FRQ section and 
um, I was trying to think of, and I had to talk with them about how, like, you know, biology, like, this isn't about the fact that you don't know biology, like, you know, this stuff, you've worked hard, and you should get credit, because you know things, but mm-hmm. I think test anxiety as, as um, really affecting a good handful of my students this year, the ones who I think are, you know, very capable and very hardworking, and they just sort of, they're deer in the headlights mm. when it's a testing environment, and then struggling a little bit with the put to that. Well, it's good to be able to acknowledge that and comfort them down. And, and uh, it's always that my students always come back and say, at least in the last few years, have come back and said, oh, that wasn't as bad as I had thought it was going to be. So yeah, and I think once they get in there, they'll be, they'll be all right. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully uh, we can get them to calm down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take a breath. All right. So uh, before we dive in, and I do want to get into your AP curriculum a lot because you have a, a lot of interesting writings that you've posted up. Um, I want to take a step back and ask you, how did you become a science teacher? Uh, what led you into the science classroom? Um, so I decided when I was 15 that I was going to teach high school biology. And here I am living the dream, as I tell my <laughs> students. Um, I don't know. When I was a little kid, I was very into science. Um, which is not super unusual. I think lots of little kids gravitate towards science. Um, my first very clear idea of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I, I have this picture that I drew when I was seven of me as a paleontologist <laughs> with like a little hard hat and like holding a shovel or something. And I was, you know, super into dinosaurs for a while um, until I learned about DNA, mm-hmm. probably around middle school and you sort of get that. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, and I was really into the idea of doing something with like genetics research. That was like my next sort of phase of I'm going to be this kind of scientist. And it was always biology. Like I was always very enamored of life science. And I wish I had some sort of like really cool, like catalyst moment for why that is, but I don't really, I just always found it to be really interesting. That's what I like mm-hmm. to read about and what I like to learn about. Um, and when I got to high school, I... I always felt really comfortable in classrooms. So as a student, um, high school was really a haven for me. Like I, I did well. I was a traditionally like high achieving student and I, I moved around a lot as a kid. So, um, my home life was not the most stable, mm-hmm. um, but school was sort of this constant thing that I could always, um, find comfort in and that I knew I would be good at and that I was confident about and that I enjoyed. And the high school that I went to, I just feel like I got so lucky. Um, I had such amazing teachers, including my biology teacher um, and pretty much every other teacher, too. I, I just felt like, you know, I used to find excuses to be in school, like mm. after school, um, because it was such a, a comforting place for me. And I, I sort of came to realize that the people I respected most in my life were my teachers, who I regarded as infallible and brilliant and hardworking patient and um very kind to me personally and it seemed like something worthy of aspiring to and so I aspired to it and um really like when I graduated high school and was making college decisions I looked at teaching programs like that was um really like I already knew that's what I wanted and that's how I made my college choice and when I got there um everything I did was all about how do I become a well-equipped science teacher so that I can serve my kids? And I got a teaching job, right? I did my undergraduate and then my master's and then I went into the classroom right away. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you say that like at 15, you, you knew that you wanted to be a a high school biology teacher. It, It makes you almost wonder like that you had this, you know, 
Mr. Holland's opus type, you know, know (laughs) teacher, but it sounds like it, it was a case of a combination of personal interest and, um, you know, great nurturing environment that you got from the school. And it wasn't necessarily that you had the wonderful biology teachers. You just had teachers as role models. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, my teachers, I I remember just thinking that they could have done anything they wanted with their lives, but they were there teaching me. Hmm. And that made me as a teenager feel really like valued and special. Like, oh, they like these really cool, smart people think that it's really important to be here with us. And, you know, I hope that I can convey some of that to my own students. Not that I think I'm particularly cool or particularly smart, (laughs) um, but I hope that they feel like my decision to be in the classroom with them is because they're important. Right. And I want to be there to help guide them. Yeah. As opposed to the idea of the that old adage, you know, can't can't do teach yeah. uh that's not the experience you got no no i don't i i never had that idea i mean certainly not about the vast majority of teachers i encountered you know we all have memories of the you know couple high school classrooms that were not especially interesting or rigorous mm-hmm. um, but most of the teachers i knew as a student and most of the teachers i know now as a teacher are just incredibly dedicated people um who are in the classroom because they worked hard to be in a classroom and because that's where they want to be yeah, I would I would definitely mirror that from my own personal experience. Those were the same types of people I I saw. Um, when you say that, my high school biology class wasn't you know particularly you know exciting and engaging. And keep in mind that there is a a little bit of a time lapse between when you were in high school and when I was in high school. Perhaps you did a little more inquiry than I did. Uh, Some, yeah, yeah not, it, not a ton, but I, it was definitely in the era of descriptive science when I was going through, and it was very much a slog through here's a bunch of stuff and here's a bunch mm-hmm. of names and that sort of thing. And it just wasn't super, super engaging. That's not to say that it takes away from the professionalism of the people in the building and what they were doing. Um, it wasn't until I got a little older that I found that biology was as cool as it was. Uh, <laughs> but but that, uh, that idea, I think I, I, I've never heard it said that way about, you know, the community of teachers. Um, but I definitely, I, I felt that same sense when I was growing up that those are people who I very much respected. And and even today, I could think back to my high school teacher across the board, whether English or history, as some of the, you know, uh, kind was the word you used, you know, kind, caring, uh, capable, all of those things that I would definitely say about them. Yeah. Interestingly, I went to the AP biology exam grading last summer. I was my first time there. Mm-hmm. And it was at the same time as the AP English reading and my high school English teacher was there. Um, and so I had the chance to like go hang out with my high school English teacher a couple of times, which was really special. Wow. That's very cool. Yeah. Are you going back this year? I am. Yeah. Yes. Looking forward to it. You won't have the acorn, but I will. Um, so this will be, this will be my year, first year. Uh, Oh, it's a good time. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly as much fun as reading 4,000 essays sounds like it will be. (laughs) I hope it's a little more fun than that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is actually, I, I liked it, but I, so it's cool for all of these sort of outside of the reading of essays reasons that lots of AP teachers talk about. But I actually did find the grading itself to be interesting, um, a little bit numbing, you know, like on day four. But mostly I liked it because I actually like grading. Um, in this, I, I don't like grading day to day, like in the classroom necessarily, just because I always have a billion other things to do. And so I'm always very interested to read student work, but I always feel like I don't have enough time to do it or that like, I don't have enough time to do it well, and I'm just frustrated about it. Um, and so being at the reading, it's like, oh, like literally all I have to do right now is look at these the student writing and mm. think about it. So I appreciated that. Yeah, it's it sounds daunting. 
<laughs> no. All right. So you've opened up the door. You've talked about your, you mentioned AP. And uh, so one of the things that you had written about, and I, I will be honest, you know, I, I stalk everyone before the show and I yeah, go on the internet and I read everything people have put out there and, and go through. And you had a lot of different things. And I would say I, yeah. I put together a few different drafts of here and I, I was, I want, and I have a feeling I'm going to, I'm going to totally spin off of what you, what you, we say here, because you, you put a lot of really interesting stuff out there. But one of the topics you've written about on uh, your medium posts uh, was about your AP curriculum and how you've created these open-ended prompts yeah. that correlated to essential knowledge statements um, and, and some sort of generalized rubrics that you used to help them um, and you definitely have talked about the idea of you, know, you put a lot of words in there that I, spoke to me in terms about how how you are helping your students um, sort of access and think about the the key essential knowledge that they need to have you know comfort with before they sit down on the AP so I'm curious sort of how your curriculum evolved to where it is and also how's it going um yeah, those are great questions. I think that's, I mean, the stuff that I've written about or that I've got on the internet about my curriculum is kind of the heart of my AP instruction. So this is my fourth year teaching AP biology, I think. Yeah, year four. Um, and the summer before my first year of AP bio, I attended a traditional apsi from College Board, mm -hmm. uh, which was great. I had Tom Mueller, who's fairly well known in um, the mid-Atlantic area, biology, AP bio circles led my session. And, and he was great. He's a little old school. Um, and I don't mean that to be derogatory or anything necessarily, just clearly from a different generation of teacher than me. Uh, but I appreciated that insight. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I got a good, this logistical footing with approaching an AP course. And then that same summer, I went off to the BSCS um, AP Biology Leadership Academy this was in its, it was the second year of the Leadership Academy. And so it was before they launched all of these regional academies, which they're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, this was in, um, in Colorado Springs. So they, we traveled there and we were there for a week. I was in the same cohort as David Knufke mm -hmm. um, and meeting him and a handful. I mean, I could, Cheryl Hollinger was in my cohort. That's uh, where I met her and um, Robin Bulleri and Robin Tanistra just all of these like really amazing AP biology educators who've been teaching AP, you know, much longer than me and teaching generally much longer than me. So the, the first thing about that was that I just got surrounded by some really cool people who were very um, immersed in the world of AP bio. Um, but the other thing that I really walked away with from that BSCS experience was a, a really, I think, exceptionally in-depth familiarity with the curriculum framework. Uh, which is a pretty daunting document. I think if you're a new AP bio teacher and you're, and someone's like, Oh, just look at the curriculum framework. And you're like, great <laughs> curriculum. And then you look at it, it's like this hundreds of pages of PDF thing um, that is, you know, accessibly written, but just really long and not necessarily like teacher friendly. It's hard to go from that PDF document to like, well, but like, what does my calendar look like? Like what am mm -hmm. I doing on day 47 or whatever? So with BSCS, we've spent a lot of time focusing on, the structure of the curriculum and the essential knowledge statements. And that was the grain size that we worked with, which was here are these essential knowledge statements. They're, you know, broad enough that you really have to spend a few days or in some cases a few weeks on one of them to really flesh them out in your classroom. But they're narrow enough that as a teacher, you can look at it and, and sort of think like, oh, okay, like this, 
you know, there are two or three case studies that I might use to get at this, or like, this is what I'd expect students to be able to do with this knowledge. Um, but I found them to be really, really useful. And that's what I, what I latched onto. So going into my first year, I started with those essential knowledge statements and I used them to kind of build out a map. Um, BSCS calls this a conceptual flow graphic. Mm-hmm. The thing I used my first year was not really a, a very good conceptual flow graphic, but I looked at the statements and I tried to put them in a sequence that I thought made sense. Mm-hmm. And that was how I built my sequence. Uh, but my course looked nothing like it looks now. It was, it was a disaster. Um, I, I didn't have any coherent philosophy around assessment oh, okay. going into that first year of teaching APIO. And I mean assessment really broadly. Like I didn't have any good grasp of like, what does it mean to assign credit for work? Like what am I assigning credit <laughs> for? Should I weight things? Um, as is, well, I actually wasn't the only AP bio teacher in my building that first year. Uh, but I was in a situation where there was really no um, chance of having a collaborative relationship with the other AP bio teacher, um, partly because I was now an AP bio teacher. So I I was just kind of making things up as I went. And I remember pretty vividly, um, this was in 2013, there was exactly one release AP exam from College Board. Yep. But I also had no test bank. <laughs> I mean, I had the textbook test bank, which is what I use, but it's not good. Um, at least it's not reflective of the actual exam. And it's very facty, right? So it was, I was just kind of trying to decide like what facts my kids should know. So my mm. kids weren't assessing well, um, which is kind of the first problem. And then I had a management issue where like I'd never taught an AP course before. And so part of me was like, oh, I need to do this really hard line like AP teacher. Like, oh, you failed this test. Well, you should have studied more, right? And I just, as a teacher, it was like, I can just put this back on the students. They're AP students. I'm like, that's fine. Um, and similarly, like, you know, kids would turn in homework assignments or classwork assignments and I'd be like, well, I guess maybe this is worth 20 points. I don't know. What do points mean? Mm. Um, do they get credit for trying? Like they didn't know how to do it. So maybe they shouldn't get credit, but like, they still don't know how to do it. And that seems problematic. Um, so I had this one conversation with a kid in the spring in one of our last units, he had turned in this homework assignment. It was a virtual Drosophila lab assignment. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many iterations of that floating around. Um, and I grabbed one off the internet, because that's what you do, and uh, handed it to my kids. And we had spent some time in class going through it, you know, and I, I felt like I had done a fair job instructing um, hypothesis testing, as, as fair as you can do in your first year of teaching AP Biology. And many of my students did fine. They did the thing, they turned it in. Um, most of them were in the ballpark. But this one kid wasn't. Um, he turned in this assignment that was, I think, mostly not finished, or he had tried one set and done it poorly or something so i didn't give him full credit on the homework and he came in as students do and he's like why did i lose points on this assignment i said well you know you didn't do most of the assignment so you didn't get points for it and he said well but i didn't know how to do it and i don't remember what i said back to him but i'm sure it wasn't useful i think it was something along the lines of well you should have come in to see me um or you know, the time to deal with that was a week ago and not now. It was something unhelpful. Um, and the conversation ended with the student not getting credit for this assignment and also still not knowing how to do the thing that I needed him to know how to do. Um, and also, by the way, now he didn't like me at all because he felt like I'd unjustly penalized him for not understanding something. Yep. Um, you know, like it's just really unproductive all around. And at that point, you know, I knew that I couldn't really do anything that school year. 
Um, but I, I left work that day and was like, no, like my first priority this summer is to figure out grading in AP bio. Like I, I need, like, I need that, like the content I can do, you know, the, the conceptual flow stuff I can work with, but like, I need a grading philosophy because I don't have one. Yeah. And that's what led me to the, um, to writing up these responses, these free response prompts that I generated. Um, at the time, I was also listening a lot to some folks who are doing work around standard-based grading in AP Bio. Yeah, you were uh, like, as you were talking, that's what I was like. The way you said points, um, I don't know if it came across to everybody, but to me, like, it, it had a four-letter word uh, yeah. connotation to the word points right, right. as you said it, and uh, and as so, like you said it with 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 uh, venomous is almost the way the points came across, and that's what I was thinking. I was like, all right, so this is we're going very standards-based on this then. Yeah, but not purely standards-based. I think for a number of reasons, and I've I've oscillated a little bit. Um, I'm actually more traditional now than I was in that first year. I was piloting these prompts, um, but at the time, like I said, I was. Um, you know, listening and learning a lot from Dave Knuffke, who at the time was doing a lot of standards-based grading in his own classroom. Um, and sort of through him and through some other BSCS folks, I also um, met and started to learn from Bob Poon, who was doing some cool standards-based things um, in his school. And, you know, a number of other people. There's lots of buzz out there mm-hmm. in the community about <clears throat> standards-based. And for a number of reasons, like pure standards-based, I think, would not work for my classroom in my school. Mm-hmm. Just it's not really practical um, in our system, but I like some ideas from it. And one of the things I really liked was trying to pinpoint what is it that I actually want kids to know? Like when I give them assignments, like what is the takeaway? Like what is the thing that I need to have them demonstrate in order for me to be comfortable that they know something? Um, and the other thing I really wanted to do was get away from those stupid conversations about why did I get a 12 out of 15 on this assignment? Um, especially when I don't always have a great reason for why they got a 12 out of 15. Like, I don't know. You just didn't do something. Or like, how do I, how do I balance like holding kids accountable for knowledge? Um, but also acknowledging effort and incentivizing, like revisiting concepts until they learn them. All of which are things that standard standards based grading philosophies try to try to address. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized that I had this great set of standards, which are these essential knowledge statements. Um, and so what I could do is I could, you know, make pretty much the only graded thing in the class be their responses to some prompts that were really specifically tied to these essential knowledge statements. And I went with a generalized rubric. My rubric is um, rubric is probably not even a great word. I'm sure someone somewhere is going to look at my rubric and then send me an email about how it's not a rubric. <laughs> it really isn't. Um, it's very vague. But it's a 10-point scale, basically. And I did a 10-point scale um, – I, again, probably not for any like great reason. It's convenient, I guess. Mm-hmm. Kids understand a 10-point scale. Parents understand a 10-point scale. Um, and I decided that if a student submitted an assignment and it was honestly attempted, they wouldn't get lower than a 6 out of 10. So mm-hmm. there's a basement, right? If you're engaging with the course and you're trying your best, even if the thing you write down is completely like out in left field, you're going to get a 6 out of 10. And the other piece that that goes along with that is I made the decision that these would be infinitely revisable. So if a student turns in something that is a six out of 10, because it's completely wrong, they can revise it. Like Mm -hmm. I will look at it. I'll read it. I'll make some comments. They can go back. And if they want to, they can make changes. And most of them do like most kids who get a six or seven out of 10 will redo their assignments. 
And so what I found then was that if a student really didn't understand like Mendel's laws of inheritance, there was a structure now where they can circle back mm. and they can try it again because there's a really specific prompt about Mendel's laws of inheritance because they really need to know it. And so it's not good enough for me or for them, for them to be getting a 60% on Mendel's laws of inheritance if we want to move forward, like they need to know it. Mm -hmm. So this allows them some space to go back and redo it. It also mitigated a lot of plagiarism um, because they're open-ended, plagiarism is really obvious. And so it's not that I don't have kids, not that my students never plagiarize. They're teenagers, like they plagiarize. But it's really easy to catch. And they know that because it's writing. It's not like a, you know, a practice set of problems, mm -hmm. which they do also get from me, but those things aren't graded. So what I grade is the writing. Um, so when I have someone who just copies and pastes from Wikipedia, or in one notable case, I had a student copy and paste an entire PubMed ab abstract, um, <laughs> you know, like immediately, like, oh, you plagiarized, right? And then they get a zero, and then we have a conversation. But the zero in that case is, is kind of meaningful because it's like, look, if you had at least tried, yeah. you would have gotten a 60. And you could have redone it, but you didn't try. You copied and pasted, so now you have a zero, and you can't redo it. And you still don't know what this thing is about, yeah. but you need to know. Um, so that, that helped and it helped me guide my instruction. So those prompts have become the backbone of the homework for my course and the prompts that I've written help me direct my classwork. So I can kind of be like, okay, the essential knowledge task looks like this. So I need to make sure that before we get to that in class, they've looked at like this case study together, or we've looked at this kind of data analysis together. Um, and it just helps me. It's like how I build the calendar really for my class now. So you've, you, I've got a few like logistical questions. So essential yeah. knowledge, there's like 60-ish essential yeah. knowledge statements. I think 61 if you include <clears throat> the science practices. Not that I know. <laughs> but, <laughs> not that I haven't been working with them, but there's like roughly yeah. 60 or so sure. of them uh, for the year. So you have these prompts and um, you give them to students. It sounds a little bit like you, that you would assign these as like a homework assignment that yeah. the students would do it that way. Yep. So it's about two or three weeks, depending on the week. Okay. So that's, and, so you're reading two to three times, however many AP students you have. About 30, sometimes 35. Okay. Um, and so that's a fair amount of feedback you're giving on a very yeah, regular it basis. It is. And so this makes up, uh, I mean, so we're not talking, you know, if we want to get into points land, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of points uh, sure. that comes out of this. Um, you balance this with, you know, uh, tests, uh, Quizzes. Yeah. How how does this fit into the 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 larger stakes? Because I think it's it's really great for the feedback for the student. So I'm thinking as a student who wants to master this content, I'm getting an opportunity to practice this, hand it in, get feedback. I'm really yeah. comfortable on that. So now we have to bridge though to the practicality of what it's like to answer questions on the AP test itself. Right. Yeah. So the, the essential knowledge statements, I call them, and someone's probably going to email me about this too, because I call them formative assessments. Like that's the official name of them in my course, mm -hmm. those essential knowledge prompts. Um, and I call them that because they're formative, right? The kids do them, submit them, redo them. Um, I'm sure technically they're not formative according to someone's definition, but um, that's what I call them. So the formative assessments are 20% of their course grade. Okay. Um, what we do in class is... I don't know. I don't, I don't describe my classroom as flipped. I sometimes describe it as blended, uh, but I don't think it's really that either because I don't necessarily expect them to spend a ton of time like watching video lectures, which I think people often assume when they hear flipped. 
Um, but our class time, you know, I use a lot of the Buffalo case studies. I use a lot of the HHMI um, activities because they're database. And I think those resources in particular set them up really well for AP style questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I do, and I stole this from Kineski as well, is that my students test monthly and all of their tests are released AP questions and all of their tests are um, cumulative. Mm-hmm. So every test I give is a cumulative test. I don't really have units. Um, and that helps too, because they're constantly seeing questions that pull in multiple concepts. And they can, um, I have a test correction policy. So I think that that helps them with the AP style questions. And I sort of talk with them about how, you know, I don't expect you in September to be an expert at taking an AP bio test. Like that's something that you need to practice. And I, I feel okay about that. It's a lot of emphasis on the AP bio test specifically, but I don't feel like I am teaching to the test. Um, in a way that is perhaps counterintuitive. Because I think that the AP bio test is um, such a great learning experience for students. Like it's a great way to, like you can learn biology through those questions. Hmm. And I think one of the big differences between my first year of teaching AP bio and where I am now is really understanding that assessment, assessment is a learning opportunity for students. It's not a measurement of like, I mean, I guess it is a measurement of where they are, but it's not a measurement of where they've stopped. Right. And it's, <laughs> And it's also not just a measurement, like they're, as they're doing it, I think they're learning. Um, I'm pretty confident they're learning. And I'm more confident that they're learning if they know that they can go back and then collaboratively discuss those questions with classmates um, after they've taken it. I think it helps them with both their just like test taking strategies, but also with the biology Mm -hmm. um, and with unpacking the questions. Yeah. So the other thing that I I like, I, I, you've got a lot of things that are in my head and, uh, the idea of not having units is something that's like very enticing to me. Um, something that I've kind of wanted to, um, get away from. I've, I've said several times, I feel like my, I feel that, uh, the Campbell textbook, as much as I love it is been a, like, yeah. it's, it is an anchor that like I drag around. Um, and it, 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 it unnecessarily anchors my course in a way that I don't want it to. Um, yeah. and, and so I'm looking towards ways of getting away from that. Um, but the the one thing that I haven't heard you talk about and heard in terms of like the content, the content, the content is the things they need to do. So in terms yeah. of practices. So is there a, you know, is it the practices just hit through labs and through other things and other activities? Is there a formal way? Is there a formative way? How do the practices, do, are the practices something that the kids know they're doing <laughs> or is it something that's just baked into the what you do on a daily basis? I hope both. I hope that both is the answer. Yeah. Um So I think I'm confident in saying that they're baked into what I do on a daily basis. I think that that's a fair representation of what kids do in my class. And it's also a fair representation of the essential knowledge prompts that I have them interact with. Um, Those prompts are the, although content centric, incorporate science practices. Hmm. So the one I talked about earlier, I talked about Mendel's laws of inheritance, but the prompt asks them to create a series of models. Hmm. So, you know, it's a content focused, prompt but they have to do something with it like they're not just summarizing the information you know and like so how do you like um or you know there's a great there's one of the essential knowledge statements for a one about subcomponents of molecules mm-hmm. um molecular i don't know so subcomponents of molecules determine molecular structure and function or something like that okay um variation and i don't know something about molecular components so the formative assessment that I give them with that one is um, 
basically an AP bio exam question. I mean, it's not one, but it's the same structure as one. Like they get a model of a transmembrane protein. Okay. And they're asked about, you know, what would happen if one of the amino acids in the, um, in the membrane, sorry, what would happen if one of the amino acids in the domain of the protein that is embedded in the phospholipid layer gets substituted out for this different amino acid? Right. And so they have to look at the amino acid chart and they have to figure out what the properties are. And then they have to talk about the effect on the molecule. So I think that built into the prompts that I've made, I mean, the practices are there. Mm -hmm. um, and then also in the classroom activities that we do, I mean, pretty much every day, the kids are doing a lot more than I am um, actually in the room. So. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, it's and so it's you know I get go back to my original question is it's it's working. This it feels like it's you know as opposed to standing in front of the room, you know lecturing, dropping the labs in mm -hmm. every few days, testing by units. You're you're happy with this in terms of its style and where it goes. I am. Yeah, I mean there are definitely things I need to get better at. Um, like what? So I think one of the things that I, I want to get better at, which was raised this year in a really interesting conversation I had with a parent, um, but I want to get better at figuring out how to give students credit for classwork, um, which is something I don't really do a whole lot of right now. Um, so in class, they do a lot of work that I think is really valuable, but that isn't graded. Um, and I think a lot of AP teachers, certainly in my building, that's pretty common. A lot of AP teachers don't assign grades to you know, a lot of classwork that kids do. Um, and sometimes they have time in class to work on things that are graded. So if we're doing a lab, for example, obviously like there's going to be some lab write up that they're responsible for and, you know, they start on that in class or sometimes it's collaborative. So they do it as a, as a group in class. Um, but things like, so if I have them doing something with a case study from Buffalo, or if I have them using an HHMI task, it's not that I think the grade, I don't personally think that the grade is intrinsically valuable, but I'm starting to wonder a lot about like equity and how having so much of their grade derived from things that they're doing outside of class or just things that they're doing alone um, might or may not be privileging some groups of my students more than others. Hmm. Um, and sort of how do I make space during class in class time to get like an authentic picture of what they know about biology and how do I fairly incorporate that into their grade? And however much I personally you know, don't find grades to be super important. I don't think I do my students a, a service by pretending like they're not important. These are kids who are college bound. Yeah. Um, their grades represent opportunity. And for better or worse, I'm operating in a points economy. Yeah. Um, and I don't like that, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Um, That's, I was actually had Bob Kuhn's uh, voice in my head that there's an yeah. economics of, <laughs> yeah, an economics yeah. to the students that they have to come up right. with how yeah. they're going to spend their time. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, and that's totally, I don't blame them for that, right? Like they're, they're savvy, like teenagers are smart. They know what's up. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm really fortunate. I think the kids that I teach are really usually pretty self-motivated. Like I don't have to do like, you know, they don't have any issues engaging with classwork necessarily. Um, it's not a management problem. It's more of a, I want to value their time. Yeah. And part of how I've done that, is I also do a self-assessment and that accounts for a pretty big chunk of their grade. And in the self-assessment, I just tell them like, you know, everything that I haven't graded that you think I should know about, this is your chance. Tell me about it. Give me mm. some evidence. Give yourself a grade. Um, and that, that has given them some ownership too over that stuff. Um, so I also, 
I also want to get better about having them do sort of more meaningful products. You know, it's so like, for example, we might spend a day or two, um, you know, like I'll, I'll use the origin of life case study from Buffalo, which is great. Uh, I really like it. And I have them write a CER with it. And I have them write CERs, you know, all the time, as everyone does. Like, that's not particularly innovative. So, you know, I, I like the CER structure, and I certainly don't want to use it less necessarily, but I also would like there to be something a little bit more satisfying from their end after we've engaged with something that I think is cool. Mm. Um, you know, or like if we do, um, I'm having them look at the what happened to the sea otters case study for a formative assessment coming up. And I just, I feel like there are all these cool examples or like some of the data points from HHMI or some of the data nugget things. Like, mm. how can I get away from just a graph in questions? Right, like a graph in questions is is powerful, I think, for learning science and for teaching science. Um, but at some point, I feel like they get burned out at, with like, here's a graph, don't answer these questions. Yeah, yeah, I, I sometimes struggle with that, like hitting the same note. As much as I love the HHMI yeah. stuff that you do get into a rhythm sometimes where it's like HHMI resource, different HHMI. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I feel like I, I sometimes get down there, but I hear what you're saying. I remember playing around when we switched over to the new AP. Um, I had the students like, like choose some products that they would make as a result of, oh, okay. you know, like in, and I would drop in, you know, different types of creations they could make. And I made them open-ended where groups of students could get together and make, you know, a, a stop motion animation or okay. could make a little, okay. you know, a, a 60 second PSA about, or a, like, and I gave them a few products to do. Um, it was very time intensive. Um, yeah. It takes the amount of time for them to generate a product that is of good quality that they're going to be happy with that also gives them the opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge it was impractical to let them do all do their own it was so i sure. had to let them go into some like it created a whole series of dynamics to the point where in general i very rarely do that anymore like it yeah we, I, for similar reasons i almost never yeah that. so i guess the question is is that finding the spaces where you are hitting notes or like you're hitting sort of that same note or it, it feels like you've done two or three units in a row and they almost have like a a predictable rhythm to them that's yeah. the place to start dropping in let's do something a little different let's do a product yeah. uh, for me i have students do large projects once a quarter and that tends to do okay. that tends to be the big thing that breaks them up um, okay. because and sort of what you're saying about i was as you're saying classwork i was like i don't give my kids any credit for what they do in class yeah, I <laughs> um, but i do i do block out large swaths of class time for them to work on things that they do produce large products for so when we are doing a term project um and actually you know when we're coming up to the ap i actually don't give them really anything except for to work on this project that is culminating really their whole year okay. in the weeks leading up. And I give them a lot of class time to get together in their group and to talk to each other and to do, you know, like, so in some ways, yes, I'm giving them points for that because ultimately they're generating a product using that time. gives me opportunity to flow around, answer questions, engage with them about the material that they're doing in a different way. And every group's doing something totally different, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, you've raised some interesting dilemma questions about, uh, the points. I love the idea of the self-assessment. Um, I think that to me, the the key for students would be how do you structure that in a way that yeah. prompts them such that they're not just, 
that is meaningful. I have a feeling from some of my students, they would totally, I just give them self-assessment and say that. And for other students, I think that would be like overwhelming. They wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty structured. So yeah. I tell them that they have a hundred points and they should give themselves a score between 50 and a hundred. And they have four categories. Um, they have to talk about metacognition. They have to talk about effort. They have to talk about ambition. Um, and they have to talk about engagement. And they have to provide evidence for each of those things. And so it's pretty, like, and I give them examples. Like, I'll keep good ones, um, you know, before they get started. I'm like, okay, here's, you know, what a student submitted in the past year. Oh. And I found that students are pretty, I also tell them that, you know, it's not whatever you propose as a proposal. And if I think <laughs> it's off base, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, and it usually, every year it's a little different. I think this year it's 15% of their grade. It used to be higher. It used to be 25% of their grade. Uh, but it almost never actually moves their grade. Yeah. Um, they typically self-assess like right where they are. You know, a kid who's been doing D work usually says like, yeah, I didn't do anything. I should get a 65. Um, <laughs> and you're like, yep, you didn't do anything. Um, you know, and kids who are working really hard, if they have a B in the class, but it's clear that they've been like running on all cylinders and it's just a reach for them. I don't have any problem with them being like, I've worked really hard. I should have a 95 in this category. It's like, yeah, you should. Like you've put in a lot of hours. That deserves something. Mm. It's fascinating. I was, I'll definitely put that away in the back of my head for when I'm uh, working on revamping because I definitely want to revamp how I score some stuff coming up. All right, so uh, let's let's take a total shift in gears. And I, I teased it earlier when I talked about our travel. And, um, and when we first started to line that up, your response oh, back to yeah. me was like, yeah, I'm kind of traveling. And I'm like, yeah, I saw social media. You're in Ecuador. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you recently traveled to Ecuador in the Galapagos. Yeah. So, like, you know, you just decided to abandon your students for a little while and go out there. Oh, no. <laughs> students were with me. Students were with me. I know. <laughs> yeah. So what was um, the driving force behind this trip? And, uh, you know, what, 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 what were your immediate takeaways? And and what what did your what did your students' immediate reactions to this uh, this trip that you went on? Um, so the trip started out I think about three year, two years ago now, um, and I was invited along. It was not organized by me; it was organized by um, our language teachers. They'd done a Spanish trip, and they had ended up. Our language department does an international trip about once a year um, for students. And a couple years ago, they were supposed to go to Argentina and something happened with the tour company and the tour company said, well, we're not running that tour anymore, but we can send you to the Galapagos instead. And they were like, oh, okay, sure. And so they went to the Galapagos. Um, and I found out about it, that particular trip. Um, a few months before they left, I saw the Spanish teacher like in the mailroom or something. And she was like, hey, I thought you'd be interested to know that we're going to the Galapagos. And I, you know, I think I just sort of like started salivating at the mouth, like right there. And I was like, oh, I, I would love to go. But they didn't have a chaperone spot available then because it was, there's been this like weird, um, you know, logistical problem that got solved by them going to the Galapagos. <laughs> so um, they had a great time and it was really successful. And they got back and they said, we're going to like actually intentionally plan another one now. <laughs> and we would love for you to come along as our like science representative. So that was how I, I fell into it. And um, we had 28 students and six adults. Um, and I guess as far as it was not a strictly science trip. Yeah. Um, you know, we used an educational tour company and we were, we had a really great experience with them. And when we were actually on the islands, we were guided by um, local naturalist guides. So we certainly like it because you're on the Galapagos, of course it is sciencey, but it wasn't like the kids were necessarily like doing science. Um, and I still haven't been able, I got back on the 10th 
and people ask me how it was and I feel like I haven't successfully come up with like a sentence to talk <laughs> about how the Galapagos was. Um, are you a Douglas Adams fan? By yes. Any so in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he starts out with like space is really big. Yeah. Um, which is like hilariously inadequate, but also the only true thing you can say about space is that it's really big. And so I come back from the Galapagos, we're like, how was it? I'm like, ah, it was really cool. Like, <laughs> it's a little bit like saying space is big. Like, I don't, I feel like I need, you know, 12 hours and hundreds of pages or just like, yeah, it was cool. Um, I think what I really, I guess my immediate takeaway is um, the natural world is just so cool. And it's so easy for me to get wrapped up in, you know, specific molecular things related to the AP biology curriculum or really specific problems of like, oh, how do I get my kids to understand electron transport? And it's really useful to just go outside and look around and be like, wow, plants are awesome. Like <laughs> animals are really cool. Like wildlife is amazing, right? And to actually be out in nature and just be able to look around you and be in awe of the natural world is an incredible experience, I think, just for humans generally, but certainly for biology teachers who are nearing an AP exam. Mm. Yeah. Did you have happen to have a lot of students uh, who you have in class on this trip as well? I had, um, of the students that were there, I think maybe a dozen of them had either already had me or were currently in my class. That's, that's good. Uh, which was really great, and that was cool. And so my teacher takeaway from the experience was that I really like traveling with kids. Um, and I, I mean, I expected to. I mean, I like to travel anyway, and obviously I like teenagers, so I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't apprehensive necessarily about traveling with kids, but I think I was surprised by how much I really liked traveling with my students. Um, I don't have my own children, and in the classroom, my um, sort of persona with kids is not very maternal. Like, I'm not very warm, usually, um, although I, I care a lot about them. But it was it was nice on the trip to sort of be aware of them as whole people, hmm. you know, and to be sort of responsible for helping them look out for themselves and for helping them learn how to look out for themselves right when they're away from their parents and, um i enjoyed that part of it and i enjoyed just you know being being out like hiking on the galapagos and a kid being like oh hey miss franciovic like what made you just to study biology anyway right and you just this great luxury of space and time to really connect with the students in a way that was authentic and and human and um not centered around how they're doing in your class yeah no bells to tell you where to go. Right. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Um, and we had, it helped that the students that were on our, our trip were, were great. And I got a lot of um, satisfaction out of watching them be really helpful to one another and watching them look out for one another and, um, you know, just be generally good people and good sports and good travelers. It was really fun. Yeah. Still, you, I still want to do this someday. Someday I'm going to go to the Galapagos. Um. <laughs> it's, you know, it's more accessible than I thought it would be. I was trying to explain to someone um, when I got back. They, you know, I saw it was like a, a math teacher who I'm friendly with, but I, we're not like close or anything. And she was like, oh, you must have always wanted to go to the Galapagos. And I was like, you know, I never even thought it was a remote enough possibility for me to like want to go there because I just never thought I would get there. I mean, like, yes, I've always wanted to go to the Galapagos, but but it seems so impossible to me that I would have never even said that out loud or like, put it on a list anywhere. It's like, you don't go to like, this is Papagos. Like no one gets there unless you're, you know, an ecologist or something. Um, but it, I'm just so glad that I had the opportunity and having been now understand that like I could go again, like it's actually not hard to get there. You just have to plan it. And yeah. 
it's not any more difficult to get to than any other place if you you're being thoughtful all right definitely gonna it's on my list um (laughs) I, i think probably similar to what you've said i've heard enough people now who've gone over the last few years have gone like why haven't i gone there <laughs> uh, but there are you're, you're right you have to plan and have the logistics so all right all right so now we're coming up to uh to what are you looking forward to you've you've done this overhaul and i there's so many things i could have asked you about i know that you've got um uh, so maybe you'll bring some of these up because I know that you teach a non-AP class and uh, there's a lot of changes going on in there. But uh, so it could yeah. be it could be AP, it could be non-AP, it could be other things. But what, in the upcoming years, what are you looking forward to in in your classrooms? So I'm going to throw you a curveball here. Okay. Um, next year, I'm teaching chemistry. Oh. And I am looking forward to that. Um, I'm still teaching bio. I'm just also picking up chemistry. Um, and I... I wasn't completely surprised. We at the way that our school works is you get to request what courses you want to teach every year. Mm-hmm. And you know, they don't promise that you'll get what you request, but you can at least say like, Hey, these are things I'd like to teach. And on my list this year, I almost as an afterthought added chemistry because I suspected with our staffing that they were going to need, there was going to be like some free floating chemistry around. Um, and I have a chemistry minor and a chemistry um, teaching certificate that I've never used. And so I was like, sure, like, let me, let me see what happens. I'll write it down. And sure enough, they needed someone to pick up a couple extra sections. So I got them. And um, I just am excited about, first of all, improving my chemistry fundamentals, because that's important. Um, and I think one of the luxuries of teaching AP Bio is that I've had to go back and really like work on them. So I, I'm hopeful that there won't be a whole lot that I need to reteach myself. Uh, but certainly I need to be better at teaching chemistry, even in the context of my AP course. So I'm excited about that. Um, my chemistry colleague is an amazing teacher in her own right, and I'm really excited to learn from her. Um, and to I think that she and I are going to have some good uh, – um, I don't want to use the terrible buzzword synergy, but I can't think of a better one <laughs> right now. But I think that we are going to help each other both become better in our classrooms, um, which we've already done to some extent, but I think being able to have – collaborative planning conversations around the same content is going to be really useful for us. And, um, you know, I'm excited. I'll see, I'll be looping a little bit with some of my kids who I had for bio this year. I'm likely to get a handful of them in chemistry next year. And then probably hopefully an AP again after that. So, um, and I'm excited to, um, be able to focus on, I'm such a biology nerd that it's easy for me to get really wrapped up in like the bio content. And so I actually think that having a content that I feel more distant from is going to help me be a little bit more objective about science teaching. Hmm. Kind of get back to fundamentals a little bit. Like what does it mean to teach good science? Um, I think a couple of classes of chemistry are going to help me with that. Yeah. You, you just, as you're talking about that, I taught a lot of chemistry early on in my career and, um, and a similar, I had a minor in chemistry and, and taught it, but um, where I teach, it's much more like, you're a young teacher. Uh, we're just going to give you a hell load of classes with all sorts of preps. So uh, yeah. <laughs> there were years where I was teaching like, you know, four different preps and like two of, you know, two chemistries and an honors bio and like, you know, like sort of all over the building. Um, and at the time, I, I I think I was a competent chemistry teacher from content, similar to competent in biology, teacher, you know, competent biology content teacher. But I certainly wasn't a very good teacher. Like I was nowhere near as good a teacher. Who isn't? They have four preps. That's insane. Yeah. Well, and also when you're, you know, you're early on your career and you are pulled in all those directions, you don't, it take, you have to hone your craft at some point. And I think you really hone your craft when you have like two preps 
and you get to design components of the curriculum and you get to yeah. like reflect on that. And early in your career, at least in my career, um, I didn't do a lot of that. But it was also, uh, and you know, I mentioned a little earlier generationally, this concept of like science practices and how how they are, you know, just as important as the content. Um, you know, I was telling one of my colleagues who was a history teacher just the other day that like I'm coming to think about it as like it's a trinity. Like it's the sure. it's the student, it's the content, it's the practices. Like the, yeah. it's a trinity. Like all three of them have to be in place because if you have a student who is in a terrible place in their life. Like it doesn't matter how you know about yeah the, you the have other... the most elegantly designed inquiry yeah. lesson ever. And... It doesn't matter. Like no matter how good your content is, how good your practices are aligned, if you can't care for your students, if you can't engage those students in a, in a meaningful way, all three of them need to come together in order to have a good curriculum. And I've been, I actually really liked teaching chemistry. I find that there's some there's like you know there's a mathematical logic to teaching chemistry sure. that that biology has so many like. You you could line up biology and teach it. You could pull topics out of a hat and start sure. there, and then build a oh, yeah. and build a story out of it. Whereas chemistry, there are a couple of logical ways you could do it, but it, there's a, such a logical sequence that came about teaching chemistry that I always found. Um, and there's a lot of neat connections, but I taught it at a time that I didn't think about practices. And I've, I've thought about that many times over the last few years of like my lens of what teaching chemistry is like is wrong (laughs) because in my mind, the way I taught chemistry didn't include all of these practices and all of these things that I now know are such good foundational teaching. Um, I can totally hear what you're saying about how going into that is going to strengthen your view because I do think teaching chemistry made me a much better biology teacher. Oh yeah. And that was just from the content side. Now, if I was thinking about the practices and the nature of science and all of those things, um, it would be, I I could see how it can really um, create new storylines for you as you go and build out your curriculum in other ways. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so um, so we're now up to the non-teaching things, and so uh, when you're not teaching and you're not a contestant on Jeopardy, uh, what what do you like to do? <laughs> um, sometimes my answer to this is often like, oh, in my free time, I think about teaching, and yeah. sometimes I talk about it and I write about it. Um, <laughs> so my other major in college is literature, um, and I'm so excited that I've recently come back to reading for pleasure. Um, which is something that I'm sure you can empathize with the fact that in my first five years of teaching was just completely not on the table. Yeah. Like this did not happen, you know, and I went from as a high school student reading maybe two or three books a week. Um, and then to being a literature major in college where obviously like I was reading all the time plus the bio stuff. And then I just, it was like quitting cold. Like I just stopped for years. Like, you know, in the summer would pick up, I'd reread the Lord of the Rings. Um, and then like, you know, maybe one other book and then I would just sort of sleep and reset. And so now I'm actually back in the habit of reading for pleasure, which is great. So that's one of the things I do when I'm not teaching. Um, I like to be outside, which is maybe not surprising. Um, the weather's been terrible here, but mm. it's finally nice enough that we can think about getting back outside and sort of walk around and enjoy that. Um, I really like to cook. So I spend a lot of my time, um, my free time kind of tinkering in the kitchen. I bake all my own bread. Um, I, yeah, we, I cook at home pretty much every night of the week. And I have a cat, so he takes up a little bit of my time. Um, and I work for Kaleidoscope, which you mentioned uh, mm-hmm. very kindly in my bio. Kaleidoscope is a journal um, of teacher stories by teachers. Um, and it's 
funded through the Knowles Teacher Initiative. So I'm an associate editor on the journal, and that takes up um, a reasonable chunk of what's left of my free time. So, huh? And I play trivia sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, plenty, plenty to do. You're gonna yeah. have you're gonna have your downtime soon. You're gonna have summer. You know. Yeah. If you're like all of the other people that you we've mentioned in here, you're gonna do like seven seventy five professional development things during the summer. Yeah, I'm actually right now, knock on wood, I'm not doing any like formal PD this summer. I'm well, never mind. I'm doing <laughs> PDs of curriculum writing, but that doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we get to picks of the episode, uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. Um, so you're talking about, I love your little visual of the Trinity. Um, and when you, you first mentioned that, uh, one of the things that my the district right now is, is talking about science curriculum is they're also talking about three-dimensional learning. Um, but of course, that's from the NGSS perspective of, yeah. you know, practice, BCI, and um, cross-cutting concepts. Um, and so that's kind of where I thought you were going, but then you're like student. And I was like, Oh, of course, right. We teach, we teach humans, children. <laughs> um, so how do you care for your students in your classroom? What does that look like for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really different, um, in, in the different groups that I have. Um, so I have, I have three different populations. I teach in an alternative program. Um, and those students are students who struggle to get through the regular school day. So, um, at present I have, six students in that class. Um, I often say they'll have like five or six kids and there's like 17 personalities in there because you never really know what's going on. Um, and so I've moved to a, I plan my curriculum by quarter with them. Mm -hmm. Um, I pick like a large and it's really nice actually with the NGSS because they've sort of done that for me. Um, and Massachusetts adopted an NGSS like curriculum. And so I pick a large sort of topic and theme and then I sort of work my way through that theme, but I feel very casual in pacing. Um, I know what I want to do. I really, I, I really sort of let sort of where the students are dictate the pacing of that course. Um, and I buff, build in a lot of buffer zone and I have like a lot of extra stuff that I can bring in if we're going gangbusters. And then I have some stuff where it's like, yeah, it'd be a luxury, you know, that's luxury. I have sort of the core that I need to get through, but realistically, if I was teaching a regular population of students, I could probably get through the core in about three weeks. And sometimes that takes a whole quarter to get through because you may lose students out to a a facility for a while or, you know, you may have suspended or other things like that. So with that group, I I intentionally build a really flexible curriculum. I also build it very modular such that if a student is not there for a quarter because they're new to the district or they have to go away for a 45-day placement or whatever, like there's a modularity to that group. Uh, and I talk to them just a lot. Like I am extraordinarily, I, I do not stand in front of that room. Um, first thing I do when I, I, I sit in front of the room, but I sit at there, they're like in an arc of tables and I pull a chair mm-hmm. around and I sit down. Um, I don't use PowerPoint with them. I'm always sitting at the same level. I'm usually sitting at a table with two or three other students within a couple of feet. I'm, it's very much about occupying the same space as them. So those are probably my students who have the highest emotional needs, you know, and I, and I will say every year I go into that and I used to try to plan that class so much harder. Um, and I've gotten just much softer on my planning and I just let them, 
I let them dictate. In fact, earlier today, I was writing down sort of what are my goals for the next three to four weeks. And I literally plan out some sort of buffer days in there. We have a garden that we run in the school. And so I wrote garden days in. And those are sort of my built in. Like if I wanted to plow through curriculum, I wouldn't do that. But I've specifically put some days in each each of the weeks, you know, a couple of days so that we can make sure that I get them you know, we get some time outside and we started planning that right before break. And so we'll do that. Um, in terms of my honors and my AP students, um, I, a lot of the stuff that you've talked about in terms of uh, having conversations with students sort of about growth mindset, you know, uh, I don't know if you use that word, those termino- that terminology, yeah. but it was okay. sort of yeah. baked into what you yeah. were talking about. Um, about like, where are you and how do you get better? And I do test corrections and I do a lot of, I do a lot of things where I get my students into small groups at tables and then I try to spend time speaking to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I do that is sort of counterintuitive and it's really noteworthy in my AP class is that I kind of intentionally diffuse the first like five to 10 minutes of every, like I am not a you walk in, there's a question on the board, we start right away. Like, mm-hmm. I'm almost the exact opposite. Like, I'm almost like, uh, I got stuff queued up and I let them sort of come in. I let them sort of settle in. And I, I'm i much more so with my AP students who are very high stress, very yeah. on edge. Um, I am, I've become intentionally, like, I intentionally take the foot off the accelerator when I start class with those guys. Mm-hmm. There are times when I want them to get right into something. Um But the biggest things that I've been doing for my students in terms of caring for them is I let them get into groups with their peers and work in small groups. And then I try to check in with them in smaller settings rather than in larger settings as much as possible. Um, And just try try to get a handle on how things are going and where things are going. And with my honors and AP students, I've... You know, I had a student say this back to me who's a senior now who I don't have, but she she wrote to me in my uh, one of my my evaluation things is that I told them they're not a number. They're a student. Um, and that's sort of one of my mantras. I teach in mm-hmm. a very high powered school with a lot of students who are like, you know, they come in as freshmen and they like have a plan for how they're going to get to college and what their arc is and what they like. And it's like, it's like just be a kid. Like, just <laughs> I feel like my mantra in dealing with those students is. I've become very aware of the self-imposed pressure that they put that 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 is existing in the school, self-imposed or family-imposed or peer-imposed mm-hmm. or the community component, and I just sort of I, I kind of try to shrug it off as much as possible, and I try to let the kids know that it's not really that important. Like it it is important. I understand it's important, but you know, they're a person. Um, sure. I tell them they're a person. I tell them they're not a number. Like I I intentionally say things that I don't think I would never have even told me 15 years ago, I would have told my students, you know, um, you're not a number, you're a person. Um, like, or I say things to them like, um, you know, imagine what'll happen if you get a 45 on this test, you know what, you'll still be alive. Like, you know, (laughs) and I, and I often talk to them about situations in the abstract of what is your reaction to be, is going to be, if like you bomb something, what's your reaction going to be? And what does that tell you about yourself? Do you, do you just take in that number as a value judgment to yourself? Um, or are you a more holistic individual than that? Um, and it resonates really well with some students. And I think they really appreciate it. And it, it actually built a really strong relation with those kids. And it confuses the hell out of a lot of the kids because they're like, no, we are a number. That's what we are here. They like, And they, they get to joke around a little bit about it. But I think as the students grow and they develop through the school, um, I think talking to the students about 
the fact that they are more multifaceted than than a test grade or a letter grade or a score or that sort of thing um, is a, is probably the biggest thing I do in terms of care for my students um, overtly. Um, and then just, you know, as you said earlier, you know, I like teenagers and I talk to them and <laughs> yeah. enjoy enjoy spending time with them as much as I can. And um, I'm always happy to have those conversations. My um, my room, because it's of AP and how our lab situation set up, my room ends up being, well, I shouldn't say my room. I teach in three different rooms. Yeah. But uh, my room, my, my home base for the morning, um, I do have space where students are just like in there. Like yeah. it's a free room and it's not unusual for six to eight kids to come in. I had a, a I had a counselor come in to check in with me about a student situation and they came in and they, they like paused at the door. It's just like, I thought you were free this period. I was like, oh, I am. This is just what's going on. Like yeah. <laughs> there are three of the lab tables the three lab tables she could see from the door were all packed with kids and she was like oh they're not they're just here I'm like yeah they're just, this is what it's like yeah, just, yeah. just come on that's in. cool so, though but, so, i mean that's a great testament right like your kids obviously feel comfortable in your space yeah well and, um, i try to tell them it's our space you know like yeah. I, I i really i think the the biggest change for me over my career is that i used to feel like i had to set a wall of like i am a teacher i'm in the front of the room like barrier separation and I became a much better teacher when I like was able to get over that um mm -hmm. and just be another like we're a group of human beings in the room and and sort of read what's what the vibe is and what's going on and um I don't your my initial reaction to your question is is probably not enough uh, when you ask for how do I care for my students like yeah. I care deeply for them but what do I do to to care for them I I always feel like it's an area that I could get better at um and and I do wonder about grading policies and scoring policies and how there are things that I have that are built into the nature of our school and the nature of our classes that what we do that are counterintuitive to what I think is really important to the students. Yeah. So um, still have areas to grow in there. <laughs> Thanks. That, that was really helpful. I, I, I like hearing about how other people sort of approach connecting with their kids. I think that that's something that certainly my first couple of years was I mean, it's always hard, right? But like, I started teaching really young. I was 23, my mm -hmm. first year in the classroom. Um, and I definitely was very hard and fast about that wall. Yeah. Um, and part of it was just because I was so sort of insecure and young myself. that I was like, no, like we need, you know, to be very sort of, and I've mellowed so much, <laughs> even in the last couple of years. And um, yeah, I just, I'm always looking for how do I, help students feel how do I help students understand how much I value them because I think that I often don't spend enough time explicitly letting them know how much I value them yeah well I also think what you had said about the self-valuation I I have been particularly over the last few years I have been I survey my students I ask their mm -hmm. opinions um you know, one of the first things I did a few years back is I, I did put a survey and one of the things that I asked them was like, how much voice do you have in the class? And I got like kind of crushed on that. Generally speaking, I got very good marks because I wrote all the questions and yeah. <laughs> I was like, I had sort of taken a department survey that we were supposed to, they were like, oh, consider doing the survey. And I took it and I looked at the questions. And I was like, I'm going to do great on this. And the one question was like, how much voice do I have in the curriculum? And I was like, yeah, I'll put it in there. And I did. I got I got some pretty hard pushback from the kids. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I think at, when you're early on in your career, you can't hear, there's certain criticisms you can't hear. You're not ready yeah. to hear them. Well, and, you can't do anything about it. You're like, that might be true, but I don't know what. Yeah. How do you fix that? Um, like, exactly. Like, I don't know that I'd want criticism that I couldn't do anything about at that point. But at that point, it made me 
like question things. And so I think when you ask students how, you know, evaluate yourself, tell me how you're feeling or, you know, come back and give this opportunity. And I think that a lot of the ways you show care is how do you design your course and how do you set up opportunities for students to, to find that. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I feel like I definitely have a room to grow, but you've, you're doing a lot of, a lot of good stuff <laughs> by, by the nature of your curriculum. All right. So let's, uh, let's, we, we've got to the end. So we're, we're up to picks of the episode. Uh, so Brittany, what is your pick of the episode? So I recently read a book called A Kiss for Hawk uh, by Helen McDonald. Um, it's not new, although it's recent. I think it was published in like 2012 or 2013 mm -hmm. or something. Um, have you read it? Are you familiar with it? I'm, I'm vague. Like it's on one of those lists of mine of, I should get to that book. Um, so yeah. It was, I read it right before I went to the Galapagos and the, it's a nonfiction memoir and the author is a historian. Um, she's British and her, specifically her area of expertise is falconry, medieval falconry. And in the book, you learn that her father has just passed away. And as part of her sort of grieving morning response, she decides to take on the project of training a new hawk. And so what you get is part memoir of her relationship with her father and part sort of a, a story about grieving, right? And how do we come back from these losses in our lives? But also you get a lot about like falconry and hawks, <laughs> um, which was, you know, the naturalist in me was like, oh, this is really cool. Um, and then surprisingly, like I knew all of that before I read the book, like I'd read the blurbs, right? And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to read this. Um, but I didn't expect was that there's a lot in it about T.H. White, um, who is the author of The Once and Future King. Okay is a uh, retelling of Arthurian legends that was published in like the 30s, I think, okay. if I'd be wrong. Um, anyway, so he apparently also wrote books about falconry, uh, which I knew nothing about. And so Helen McDonald in her book, H's for Hawks, in some ways is talking to T.H. Um, White and his work on falconry. And so she tells his story while she's telling her story. And there's this great like intertextual conversation that happens. And the literature nerd in me really loved that um, and I, I learned a lot about T.H. White that I didn't expect to learn while I was learning about Hawks. Um, and, but one of the, my biggest takeaways from the book generally was just the respect for life um, that really comes through in the book. And there's a lot in there about like observing the hawk hunting um, and, you know, what it means to watch death. But like in that context of, well, the hawk is feeding itself and this is like, you know, a natural behavior. And, and how does that fit into our cycle of what is natural and, and what, what life means? Um, and, really cool things about some relationships between humans and the natural environment and wildlife and humans and other humans. It, it was a really powerful read and um, I'd highly recommend it for anyone interested in, um, you know, what it's like to be a human. <laughs> it's a great book. Oh, that's great. That's great. I, I definitely have that. It's always one of those books that I think is on my list. I bet you it's probably in my, like uh, probably one of my Amazon lists. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I definitely have put that, put there, that there at some point. Um, uh, so, so I compile my uh, list of summer books that I never get through. Um, <laughs> I'll add uh, H's for Hawk. Yeah, I brought three books with me on my uh, on my break uh, that I just went to uh, on April break. I got through one of them. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> so uh, awesome. I'm a big uh, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes uh, fan, um, cool. and so I've been reading. Sort of, uh, it's, I hate to call it fan fiction, but it's like, uh, that's what it is. It's like modern day fan fiction. And I had read, I don't know if you've ever read The Beekeeper's Apprentice. Um, I haven't. No, I've heard the title, but I. Yeah, it's, 
it's basically the idea is an, an aged an aged Sherlock Holmes uh, meets this like 19 year old Mary Russell who was raised yeah. in America but has got British background or and she comes back and she is an orphan and the she's a very much a Sherlock Holmes personality okay. and they establish and I there was the first book in a series and I loved the first book I did not care for the second book um, so then I switched over and I got a, another book which is again modernization uh, it was called uh, a, a, a study in Charlotte uh, okay. which is a good play off of a study in Scarlet which is the first Sherlock Holmes book but um, yeah, it's one of those little rabbit holes I like to go down when I pleasure read. That's cool. Well, um, you might have me sold on Beekeeper's Apprentice. I like that little premise. And I I mean, fan fiction can sound so derogatory, but like I love when people play with genre and character and, you know, approach old stories in new ways. That's really cool. I found I found the first book in that series, The Beekeeper's Apprentice. I found it really, really good, and I know some people really enjoyed the second book. I, you know, authors have to make choices, and <laughs> I I did not care for many of the choices in the follow up book. I was just you know like you you come to like characters from a story, and it's in an arc, and I was like, nope, I don't want to read. <laughs> so I I thought I was going to go down this. I love I love good series. So I'm you know I find something in the beginning of a series. I'm like this person's written seven books on this. Awesome. And so I read book one, loved it. Read book two, and I was like not as enamored with it. So I switched over to a to a different series and at a very similar uh, arc. So that is not my pick though. Uh, <laughs> my pick is uh, is actually from uh, an article I found in Science News just this past week. Um, and I just I. I love bioprospecting, and this one's about uh, mosquitoes. Uh, and the article is called "Mosquito Spit Can Bust Blood Cells in Mice," and it's all about uh, this group of proteins. It's actually a, a, a mixture of proteins that they called um, anophenylins, uh, fen- mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's from Anopheles. Is I imagine that's the origin mm-hmm. of it um, from the genus uh, for the mosquitoes. Yeah. It's they're found in mosquito saliva. And these proteins basically um, have sort of this clot-busting ability. They it could break up cells, but they can also break up clots. And so they were talking about some of the potential um, anticoagulant uh, properties of this. And like many other things with uh, bioprospecting, they had taken these proteins and they started playing around with them and worked on doing some genetic engineering um, mm-hmm. and doing some synthetic biology with them and make, possibly making them more, po- more potent uh, anticoagulants. So this could be a whole class of drugs for... Or, um, uh, various types of therapies that you could use um, based off of something that you find naturally within the mosquitoes. So I thought it was a, a pretty cool protein and a little bioprospecting, and um, I think it might be a little neat hook. Um, yeah. I, I often struggle. Um, I, I often bring up the concept of mosquitoes and like whether or not we should wipe them all out. It's one I, mean, of I was my... just going to say, does this mean that we have to keep them? Like, yeah. Really engineer them out of ecosystems? Well, it's, <laughs> one, it's, it's one of the questions I like to ask ki- kids. And honestly, it's a question I don't like to ask kids because I really have a hard time defending <laughs> why we shouldn't just wipe them all out. Uh, some of them will be like, well, but don't other animals rely on them? And I was like, yeah, they're mostly invasive. Um, uh, yeah. See, <laughs> so, I don't even try. I, I've filmed that to kids before and I'm always like, ah, we probably should just wipe them out. Like, yeah. Know. But uh, this is actually, I, this is the first reason I've came up with and it's your good classic biodiversity yeah. you know what if we if we have this biodiversity we can look at this bio uh biodiversity we can use it for bio inspiration and we can get some great yeah. stuff out of it so i love bio inspiration that's great did you coin that or no that... no not at all <laughs> but awesome. I, I do a protein project with my ap students and um and it's one of those phrases that i frequently use with them i also do a lot of uh synthetic biology uh with biobuilder okay. um and i've learned a lot about sort of the the interface between using 
the basis of biological systems to come up with engineered products. So uh, very much the way I've, I've learned to think in those terms um, when I see proteins in the wild and how we could possibly use them for something else. That's awesome. That's very cool. So I like that it's a good um, like physiology bridge as well there to talk about like why well i guess in evolution because everything is evolutionary but <laughs> like why do mosquitoes have anticoagulant proteins is a great yeah great sort of starting question for a lot of cool phenomena yeah i think this could open up a lot of different doors for you depending on the population you have and how deep you want to go into it but um yeah it's, I, thought it was, I thought it was cool yeah it's awesome all right. Well, thank you so much, Brittany, for joining me. Um, and again, this is going to be our, this is the last episode before the AP. Uh, I'm probably going to record another one before the AP, but this is going to be the last one that I recorded before and came out before the AP. So uh, so we will be in near panic mode. It'll be the first week of APs when this comes out. Uh, well, I won't be in panic mode at that point. My job's done. Uh, the students. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I always tell the kids, that they're like, are you nervous? And I was like, I was nervous the first two, you know, year or two. It's like at this point, there's really nothing I can do about it. Um, so. They're like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do during the AP? And I told them I, uh, I have a nice tradition of um, I go for a run, because um, oh, <laughs> awesome. my AP classes are in the morning, yeah. um, so I bring a change of clothes and I go out. I I see them off on the bus, and then I go and change, and then I go for like a you know nice like five six mile run, um, and then I I come back, um, <laughs> and then I teach the rest of my day. Um, but I have no, I'll have no classes that morning, so that'll be my my uh, my little stress relief, so I can get out of my head and do that. All right. I buy them all. I buy them all pizza the Friday before the exam. Oh, do you? I usually go and buy uh, munchkins, um, and I, I meet do an after-school study party on Friday. Yeah, I, I usually meet them the the morning before the bus. They load up. We have a gazebo out in the front of our school uh, where they pick up the buses to take them because they take them off campus for the APs oh, okay. um, sure. into two spaces. So I always I always get like you know hundred munchkins or so because we the number of kids we have and I go out and I meet them out by the buses or I'll pick up a few dozen donuts or something like that and I'll go out and meet them out up front and then I'll always bring calculators. Um, I'll bring a box of calculators with me, and I'll bring the, I'll bring the, yeah, the pencils. They, 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 the school supplies those, but they don't always remember the, the um, (laughs) calculators. But I'll always bring a box of those, and a couple kids will be like, oh yeah, that's right. Um, It's not as big a deal now this year. Um, Now they can bring their actual real calculators and not the toy ones they used to have to use, but. <laughs> but that's good. All right. So let me give my show credits. Uh, if you would like to support the work that I do here, you can support me on patreon.com slash lots. And we invite Patreons into a community along with the work of David Konefke and John Darko. Um, I actually just got an email from uh, Paul Anderson, who was asking me about it just the other day. Uh, but I, as I told him, uh, we need to get better at posting. So I'd love more Patreons, and I'd love people to harass me to make sure that we post a lot more into our uh, our shared community about that. But I do send out my show notes uh, on the Patreon page, along with the audio, and I will also um, put things up into our uh, community, our Slack channel community, um, so that we have a little sometimes side conversations about that. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. Uh, show notes are available at lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can also follow Brittany uh, at, it was F-R-A-N-C-K-O, and was it W-L-H-S? Oh, gosh, I remember the whole thing. It's up on the top of my show notes, and I remembered it off the top of my head. <laughs> so you can follow us. That will be in the show notes. You can just click on it and link it. Uh, you don't have to remember to type that in. So uh, thank you for joining me, and I'll talk to everybody soon. <laughs>